0: Welcome to Food on the Mind. This is your host, Jeb Stewart-Johnston. I'd like to invite you to head on over to the website. If you get a chance, it's at www.foodonthemind.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Grab your free mindful eating guide. Uh, You can even set up a consult call with me. uh, Kind of talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. But mainly, for me to help you get better at helping yourself. And now, without further ado, here's our next guest. Hello, welcome everyone. Uh, Today, I have my uh, good friend and, um, gosh, one of the first people I met in this industry, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, um, most of you probably know him for his, uh, work primarily on uh, metabolic flexibility, but, uh, Mike is one of the, I don't know if I would say the, the first people, but, but one of the early, um, Academics that that kind of adopted us heathens in the uh, regular fitness world <laughs> and took us under his wing to help us all get a little bit smarter in the in the science of nutrition and 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 fitness. But Mike is also, you know, I think what's going to be really important for 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 my focus in this podcast is that Mike is is one of the guys that really um, started bringing to light more of the nutrition concepts as a whole in in fitness. Um, it was, people were focusing on exercise, which is super important, but within the exercise physiology world, a lot of people kind of were not paying a lot of attention to some of these nutrition concepts. And Mike is one of the first ones, I think, that um, in a time that that nutrition was getting more and more dogmatic, uh, saying that like, hey, maybe it's more holistic than that uh, through the metabolic flexibility. So um, I think what I'd like to start off with, Mike, is like, we're going to delve more into kind of, again, with the whole food on the mind concept of, of how this ropes into other areas but if we can just start and i know this is rehashed a lot but there's probably people that haven't heard you speak before that just the basic concepts of what metabolic flexibility is and then we'll kind of dive more into all the uh, other ideas of flexibility we can take in
1: yeah perfect um you know you've been around fitness stuff long enough to see that these kind of arguments come and go we had like the low fat craze and now we've had like the high fat low carb craze and now uh, I even I wasn't the only one to predict this, but protein is now bad because ooh, it's gonna you know shut off your autophagy, and we don't want to run mtor too much, and God forsake, we get too big or whatever, Just doesn't really happen. But it seems like <laughs> to write a a book, you have to demonize a macronutrient group and say this is bad, don't ever do this. And again, this is in the realm of healthy people, not pathologies. And with metabolic flexibility, I'm like, huh. Okay, so let's just think about this. So if I do a super high fat ketogenic type diet, which we know can be done in a safe manner, but I'm a high level athlete where speed and power matters a lot. It's not a good not a good mix, right? Cause speed and power is gonna drop off. On the other hand, we could go to the other extremes too. So fitness is always about the extremes. So with metabolic flexibility, it's like, well, maybe we should consider the context of what it is you're doing and not necessarily demonize any macronutrient. So for a healthy individual, it's probably a good idea to use carbohydrates to a high degree. It's also probably a good idea to use fat to a high degree. Then it just depends upon what you're trying to do at that point. If you're going to, you know, try to kill yourself doing 20 rep squats, Yeah, I don't think I would do that on a super low carb diet day in and day out and expect to, you know, feel halfway decent with it. Um, So carbohydrates are good for high intensity exercise and performance. Um, But when we're just sitting out, you know, like having this chat, things of that nature, you probably want to be primarily using fat. There's no need to use a sort of higher energy fuel like carbohydrates. So metabolic flexibility is how well can you use carbohydrates on one end of the spectrum how well can you shift to use fats on the other end of the spectrum so you can use carbohydrates really well you can use fats really well and then how well can you switch back and forth between them right so the example i gave high intensity speed and power yeah you definitely want to use carbs you're just hanging out watching netflix yeah using fat is is better for that
0: yeah and from a you know totally personal anecdotal uh, note like I've gone through phases of like just like hammering carbs away and mm-hmm. I've never been like a <laughs> high fat person but but you know like I've gone really high carb and and uh it, it's been great but I started just getting to this point of where I was like just constantly just feeling I just felt terrible and a lot of it was because I was trying to get so many calories that I wasn't getting any fiber in so I, I kind of did this switch after coming back from Costa Rica actually where I was like you know what I don't feel great how can I change this so I um I just kind of switched just my day. I just kind of moved more of my carb timing around uh, workouts mm-hmm. up to my fat content in the mornings. Cause I was like, Hey, you know, like I probably am not getting certain like micronutrients in because I'm, I'm so, I'm not eating whole eggs. I'm like, you know, yeah. and it, it was amazing. Like digestion improved. I think my, you know, I'm making this up and it's totally anecdotal, but I feel like my nutrient partitioning improved because I was getting more out of more calories. I felt like, and I just felt better as a whole. So now I actually have a relatively high fat morning. My afternoon, which is around my workouts, is relatively high carb, low fat. and then evenings are kind of a, you know a solid blend. and of course, there's just a ton of protein in the, all, all around. Yeah. But totally anecdotally, I also feel much better. And to me that is such an important aspect because if you don't feel good, like bottom line is your training's not going to be good, no. you're just not going to enjoy what you're doing.
1: Yeah. The amount of genital fortitude you need to get to the gym just becomes astronomical, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's honestly like I was training hard and like you know if everyone of us has had like a year of like we're training it just kind of feels and you know going in it, going into COVID I was getting this point of like hating training and uh, then COVID hit and it was like oh my god what what did I just do like I, I just screwed myself <laughs> I hated training for the past year and now I'm going to be so limited but yeah it's you know and I just I feel like so much of that is just But I do think that sometimes, you know, taking things to the extreme, I was going for massive hypertrophy. And so I thought that it was just, I just had to hammer carbs away. And it was like, you know what? Actually, when I felt into this more flexible model, I actually started seeing better results and, and better body composition as a result.
1: Yeah. And that kind of even begs the question, too, of which we don't know, is how much of a caloric surplus do you need to, quote, unquote, optimize or have better hypertrophy? You know, it's like it, at some point your line is not going to be linear and it's going to, you know, drop mm-hmm. off, assuming you're not doing, you know, boatloads of drugs or something like that. Um, but even then, at some point, it's still going to drop off. It's just a different point. Um, so is it a 500-calorie surplus, a 1,000? You know, if I were to throw a dart at a wall based on a handful of studies, probably 500. And again, that's mm-hmm. even in practice harder to figure out exactly what that is because everything's always changing. Um, so if you think back to, um, I flashbacks to like the late eighties and early nineties about just how fat bodybuilders would get in the off season. And then you saw like how many of them had a hard time getting back quote unquote in shape again. Um, so I think at some point, if you just way overshoot that your body is going to give you feedback of like, no, this isn't so good. And I mean, I remember years ago, I was trying to get up to 250 was, was my goal for body weight. Cause I'm like, that would put me at almost like 100 pounds over. Like, when I started lifting, and I got to like 240, 245, I was stressed out of my mind doing my PhD. And from about 235 to 245, I realized, you know what, none of my lifts have gone up, I just got fatter, like, really fast. <laughs> so, yeah. I think I've kind of hit that top end for now. <laughs>
0: Well that's you know and I I equate it to there's there's a lot of like fluid retention, a lot of intramuscular yes. water and like I just like there was just a lot of I got I just had a lot of bloating. Um and like I when people would say they were bloated up until that point I never understood what they meant. I was like that, that <laughs> I, I was like I think that's like a made up term. And yeah. then it was just like I just like constantly was just, like like everything just felt like garbage. I started and it's yeah and i wasn't that heavy i mean i'm i'm only 5 8 so like i think yeah. I, I think i pushed i think i pushed 215 at one point yeah and yeah. now i'm about now i'm about 205 and honestly i'm probably fatter than i need to be like i i'll i'd probably just i'd love to stay around 200 and lean out but it's like one of those things too is each year i get a little bit older i'm like man like the the <laughs> ideal of what i think is is big is like looks really uncomfortable
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean i've cut down a lot and i'm like i had the realization about a year and a half ago it was even at ben's place in costa rica of like i don't think i'm probably ever realistically gonna go above 230 again and hell i'm i, I may not even go above 220 again you know it's just like i for my frame and my goals and how much time i'd have to dedicate to it and it's just probably not in the cards and that's okay it took me a while to actually kind of come to that that sort of realization yeah
0: (laughs) it's and and, and i i go i vacillate back and forth because like i you know i go to the gym and there's a dude who's you know IFBB pro in there and i'm like oh man that guy's huge and then i'm like oh yeah this is his job
1: yeah (laughs) like that's what he does
0: like that's all he does is eat and sleep and work out
1: yeah and he's probably made other you know external supplement decisions that some of us may or may not want to do and you know whatever each to their own i'm not passing any judgment or whatever but you know you kind of got to have, everyone has to consider the big picture too of like don't want to dedicate five hours of my day doing this Meh, i love lifting but not five hours a day to everything it's, <laughs> the,
0: it's really the eating i mean honestly oh yeah like that's the, the hardest thing you know the lifting is yeah lifting's 90 minutes it's great like when i was when i was at my my peak of like actually bulking and really putting on a lot of weight like about a year ago a, a lot more my second time really of, of gaining weight um i Pat and and I were having a conversation and said and I was like man I was like I just feel like garbage and he's like me too cuz he was kind of in the same boat I was like except for like 90 minutes a day when I feel like a god like in the gym oh, being heavier gym. like everything was awesome <laughs> but the other 23 hours I just felt like garbage and I was like I don't know if the trade off's worth it my sleep apnea got really bad like it was just like and that I wasn't even big like the guys that are my that are my height that are pro bodybuilders walking around like 280
1: oh yeah (laughs) it's just i mean i can't imagine how they feel from hour to hour yeah it's just so insane and at some point like i remember just having multiple staring when i was up like at four thousand five hundred calories a day and you're trying to eat mostly whole food right i'm not like just inhaling pop tarts every other meal and like you're having this you know half hour staring contest with this massive bowl of rice and you're just going what am i doing with my life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: so one of the things that, um, you know, again, I think the metabolic flexibility thing has been um, super helpful to a lot of people because it, it obviously, the course is extremely complicated and the science is mm-hmm. extremely complicated. But the concept as a whole is actually relatively simple when you break it down. Yeah. Like, like, hey, like we're just trying to make this easier and and you do it just by eating. Whole Foods and so one of the things that you've been kind of hinting at over the past couple of years uh, is is this idea of 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 lately physiological flexibility and uh, I've also heard you even drop in psychological flexibility so mm-hmm. I think like let's start because I really love because again I think one of the things that we talk about a lot and, and um and and I you know the people that I'm friends with in 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 this industry that are all very interested in is this idea of like anti-fragility of resilience. Mm -hmm. And to me, this really speaks to that as a whole. So can you kind of give me your, like your little thing about physiological flexibility and kind of where you, you came up with this and how you started to develop that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of fell into metabolic flexibility starting God, 13 years ago. Now, Uh, I started my PhD in exercise physiology. I transferred from the engineering department and uh, the guy who was in our department comes over and he goes, hey, you know, we're looking at this topic on you know, metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. They both involve a lot of math. And so my advisor at the time, you know, points to me and he goes, hey, you new math boy, these are your projects now. <laughs> I don't wanna do more math <laughs> stuff, shit. Why did I come over here? Um, and so they're trying to find a way to quantify metabolic flexibility using some advanced variability analysis, that kind of stuff. And so after i got kind of accustomed into thinking about that in terms of uh, fuel systems in the body you know a couple years after that i was like oh well how do we apply these concepts to like yourself as like a physiologic organism and so i just kept looking in the research and there wasn't really any terms per se of physiologic flexibility but in different sub areas you would find the topic kind of show up under uh, different names so I spent much time thinking about it and I'm like, okay, so if we want to create a human that's more anti-fragile and more resilient, like once we have basic nutrition, good exercise and sleep, our stress is somewhat manageable. Like, what do you, where do you go next? Like, what do you target? Like, what's your framework of figuring it out? So I thought, well, let's see, the body is organized probably by survival, right? Your body's going to do everything possible in order to survive. So what? Things, what systems in the body does it have to hold constant or you die? <laughs> and the first one is like, oh, temperature, right? Humans are homeotherms. We have to kind of hang out at 98.6. It's actually a little bit different than that. Um, but we also can experience uh, high temperatures in sauna. We can experience cold temperatures, you know, jumping in a cold lake in Minnesota. So we have this ability to kind of adapt within reasons to temperature. I was like, oh, interesting. And then I'm like, oh, what else do we have? Oh, pH, right? Your blood has to be very close to, you know, it's around seven, you know, pH. Any deviations uh, from that, you're going to be in a world of hurt. However, you could do hop on the Concept Two, evil rower, and do 500 meter or 2K, and you know, get a ton of, you know, lactic acid, which is lactate and hydrogen ions. You could do some breathing techniques. You can do different things to increase an acid load or even a basic load and your body will kind of buffer those things out. And we know that via adaptations, you get better at those buffering systems, especially on the hydrogen ion side. And you can look at blood glucose. You can also look at oxygen and CO2. So I'm like, okay. so those are kind of the four uh, homeostatic regulators. Then maybe if we train those systems to have a wider range, then we'll be a more resilient organism, right? So if we look at a simple one related to nutrition like blood glucose, you know maybe you should be able to fast for 19 to 24 hours and not have your blood glucose like plummet to nothing and not be hypoglycemic and feel like you want to gnaw your arm off because you're so hungry on the other hand i have what i call the two pop-tart test you probably should be able to eat two pop-tarts and not have your blood glucose spike over 120 maybe 140 in u.s units right can you dispose of a high amount of glucose and again, these don't mean that you're going to live at those extremes all the time. It's just like, uh, can you buffer a high amount of stress, right? So think of like a like a massive like military vehicle that can buffer a lot of tr- you know differences in terrain versus a three-cylinder Ugo, right? You probably want to build in the capacity of your body to buffer these insults because I think you're going to be a more resilient organism over time.
0: Yeah, that's. And I think that's what, so. Um, it's so funny because like yesterday I was. Now that I live in South Carolina, I actually drive again, so I actually can listen to yeah. podcasts. <laughs> so, so it's. So I'm like, oh wow! It's like so. I I, I threw on our friend's uh, uh, James Serby his podcast. He had our yeah. friend Ryan Lecure well, on. Sorry. So the first 20 minutes of this podcast is them talking about the weather, and it's kind of. <laughs> but it was kind of hilarious because James grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he talked about yeah. playing soccer. If they would play like kids from the West Coast. They'd be Mm -hmm. like, oh, these kids can't handle this humidity and heat. We're going to crush them. Ryan's from Albany and he's, you know, talking about like how school would get canceled for snow, but he would have to ride his bike to wrestling practice anyways. But they were saying (laughs) like, hey, like, you know, there's this thing about growing up in a place where, you know, there's this and Ryan made a really great point of like, hey, there's this um, this standard that everyone has to bear. Like everyone has to deal with the the weather. Mm -hmm. Like so. You you kind of forced to be tough, whereas you know if you grow up somewhere where it's just beautiful all the time, not everyone has to ever deal with like you don't ever get this like this stress adaptation or this this result of like hey it's like life is gonna suck for half the year, and and I was I kind of love that I was like you know what it's 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 a really good point like growing up it's like hey we all have to deal with the fact that it's hot and if you want to play sports you got to play outside it sucks or you have to deal with the fact that it's really cold and if you play like I remember football practice when. Mm-hmm temperatures would drop and our coaches would come in the room and be like half shirts today no gloves so the receivers weren't allowed to wear gloves and then they would break out brand new footballs and the quarterback would just hammer up like just basically (laughs) cause pain Uh, but it was you know it's like sport is about resilience and i kind of love that but like this idea of like actually being able to quantify it on the row and like first of all anyone who follows anyone who's uh, a client of mike's Sees the like nasal breathing two k yeah. row tests, <laughs> so they know that he puts them through torture. But it's yes. you know every I I, I, act, I act, no one actually outwardly complains about it. They kind of complain about it, but the results seem to speak for themselves. So there's something happening there. Now, do you see this? Obviously, this creates more resilience from from a standpoint of like, okay, now I can do hard things. How does this transfer over to the rest of their training?
1: Yeah. So what I came up with is, and initially when I did the whole physiologic um, certification or physiologic flexibility certification, I was not going to talk about this until the very end, but I soon realized when you get into the research of like say cold water immersion, pretty much all the stuff you've heard is BS. However, I think it's still useful and there's some other, you know, practical uses that are not talked about a lot. So my whole goal with the course and even talking about the physiology side is actually to get them to the psychological point, right? So if you think about our brain, right, the goal with, I would say, physiologic flexibility is to get your prefrontal cortex to override your limbic system, meaning take the new kind of more evolved part of your brain and have your use that to think your way out of stuff your little lizard brain doesn't want to do right so for example getting into cold water if it's cold enough it always sucks when you first get in like i've been doing it for a year and a half now there hasn't been one day i've crawled into you know 38 or 40 degree water and been like yes this feels warm woohoo i made it i'm adapted it's like no still sucks i know it's gonna suck and i can be prepared to have a better response to it sucking it's like doing a max 2k on a rower no matter how good you get you can go to the elite level it's just going to suck, right? There's, there's no, mm-hmm. there's just no way around it. So I think using that new part of your brain to go, aha, but I'm, I'm a smart brain, I can predict into the future to know that yes, it's going to suck, but it's temporary. And I know that this has long-term benefits, so I'm going to still do it. And I think if you get really woo woo on this everyone in the future now from facebook to google to selling you stuff to whatever is going to target your your lizard brain right because it knows oh you want food delivered to your door great we can have that happen you can just press a button on your phone now you don't have to reorder anything and food shows up at your door right because we're also we're physiologically wired for efficiency right and our friend dr ben house Mm -hmm. has talked a lot about this too like i used to get mad at clients who would stop at the 7-eleven and get like four pop tarts and a large, you know, slurpee with no ice. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? This makes no sense at all. And then I realized, no, to your little lizard brain, that makes perfect sense, right? You can get like 550 calories for like a dollar 37 and literally less than a minute. That's like the Mm -hmm. ultimate of efficiency, right? So we're, we're kind of hardwired for that. And I think the only way out of that whole mess, is to train yourself via habit and setting up some stuff to do that's hard to over time that that gets a little bit easier and gets a little bit easier and you get to make a decision that maybe is a little bit more hard but has long-term benefits and then that then starts to become a habit just like exercise And right? you talk to someone who's never exercised you know they're like why do you want to do that like i don't know every time i exercise it hurts it doesn't really hurt if you're doing it right, but they're not used to those sensations. Their brain literally thinks it's trying to hurt them. All right. But over time you go, okay, this is a little bit better. Ah, I know there's long-term benefits of it. And, you know, you end up doing it for many years and you can get yourself to do things that people who are new wouldn't be able to do. And I think that is the way we get out of a lot of the current mess we're in.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say like, I mean, I, Technically, all advertising and marketing really is playing on at least an emotional level, if not a, uh, you know, biological level. I mean, it's, it's oh, definitely. good advertising, you know, good advertising completely <laughs> passes right past our logic. Or yeah, And it works on, on even when I know what they're doing. Even when you know it. That's I can the scary be, part.
1: Yeah, I can be 100%
0: <laughs> and I can say, man, I mean, I and that's what people like people complain about Instagram targeted ads or whatever. I'm ashamed. To, no, I'm not ashamed to say it. I'll say it openly. I love it. I have found some stupid things that I might not need, but are kind of yes. cool that I've bought because they targeted me on Instagram and they know like, Hey, this yeah. guy likes dumb things that are fun. <laughs> like, okay, cool. <laughs> but you know, I, and I, but I do think it's like the interest. So one of the interesting things that I see, so at first, cause everyone at first I started seeing you, you do, you filling up your extra freezer with ice and I was like, what's, <laughs> what's Mike doing? I was like, I, I know hell? he's not doing this oh, for God. recovery. Like I know <laughs> that, you know, this it's. And so then when you started explaining, I was like, Oh, and I think that's one of the, the pitfalls of fitness and nutrition and all this stuff is that we fall into the trap of there's only one reason that anyone might be doing something. And that reason is wrong.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So why would they do
0: it? And it's like, there could be, it's like, you know, when someone's doing a row a certain way and someone's like, well, that's not tag targeting lats. And it's like, well, what if they're trying to target mid back or what if they're just training the row pattern? Like, what if they don't care? What if they're a wrestler and they're just practicing picking someone up off the ground? Yeah. So it's, and and I fall into it. I mean, I think we all do because we have our biases and, and, but I think, I think that's why things like this are so important to me is to be like, okay and being friends with people like you is important to me because i can see you doing something that goes against my bias and then instead of me saying that's stupid i have to say (laughs) well i know it's not stupid
1: i get a lot there's got to be a
0: reason for it (laughs) sure and and that's everyone's first response instead of saying like hey what what are you why are you doing this like what is the purpose behind this it's well you know that doesn't work for recovery and you're like well well yeah of course i know that yeah yeah (laughs) i have a phd in exercise physiology
1: (laughs) That was my first response years ago when I heard of uh, Wim Hof doing stuff. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what the hell? This is so stupid. That was like literally my first response. And then I remember looking into it and I'm like, oh, maybe there's something to it. Oh, he actually does like science. Oh, wow. There's been a couple scientific reports. And I started reading the literature. And I remember like a couple of years after this, I was at um, a Swiss conference and we we're hanging out with, uh, I won't say his name because it was a private conversation, but very well-known person in the fitness industry. Everybody would know. And we're just chatting, and I was asking him, I said, hey, we we're talking about Wim Hof. I said, oh, you know, well, what do you think of Wim Hof? And he's like, I don't know, man. I think he's kind of kooky. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a valid response, you know, because it's definitely on the edge. But then you start looking at even though anecdotal reports, you're like, oh, well, maybe there is something here. Maybe there is something going mm-hmm. on. Um, and I think that's how a lot of stuff starts, right? A lot of stuff starts as that's on the edge. That's just a bunch of outliers. That's weird. It's kooky. And the next thing you know, like a couple of years, it's like mainstream and everybody's doing it.
0: Well, you know, I think a perfect example of this is is something you teach, uh, RPR. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> that looks kooky as hell. <laughs> it's, and, and and so anyone who's not familiar, any of my clients are familiar with it because I actually, Mike and I, we talked one day and kind of came up with this protocol that I use um, for a lot of my clients to help them go to sleep. And it's just the basic RPR, you know, reset, um, that they can do in bed. And Mike, you were like, Hey, I saw, I have some of my clients do this and I, I don't know why, but I tell you what, and it's not everybody, but I would say yeah. probably at least half of my clients who I have do that are like, I don't know what that is, but I fell asleep last night. Like I did, I just have to do some deep breathing, do that little reset, yeah. laying in bed. And they're like, they're like, and I was like, I don't care why it works. I don't care like yeah. if it helps you go to sleep. Awesome. But you know, it's one yeah. of those things is kooky and it's like, okay, well, why is this working? Well, it's like, well, we don't know exactly. So, but the thing is, is even if it, only, even if it is placebo, whatever it is, if it works on 50%, I don't know many things that work on half of my clients. <laughs> so yeah. if there's something that does like it's, that's, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah. And initially I took a bunch of people and tested it on people who, I said, Hey, you know, I'll have you come in. I want you to try this thing. You kind of push on yourself in weird areas and helps with muscle activation. They're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. (laughs) Perfect. Come on in. Right. Cause I'm like, if it works in the face of a nocebo effect of someone who already thinks this is absolute bullshit, I'm like, it doesn't guarantee there's a physiologic response, but there's probably something there. And then after having, you know, done it for four and a half years, it's, It still just boggles my mind that it works a vast majority of the time, you know, and I've done a lot of other stuff in that area that, you know, hasn't been nearly as effective. But again, it's like, well, well, why is that? Like, I can give you some theories as to why, but there's not a lot of published literature either. There's a couple poster presentations and that's it. So from a scientific standpoint, then the answer is we don't really know (laughs) it's not that it doesn't work or it does work it's here's our observations you know we don't have much to go on so the answer is not really sure but um I don't see a downside either you know and that was the first thing before I started teaching it it was oh god I don't know if I want to teach people how to do their own hands-on stuff that sounds like a disaster Um, but when I realized I'm playing around with it I'm like huh the biggest downside I ever found was sometimes it just didn't work right I never found anyone who actually made themselves worse so I'm like, okay, so there's not much of a downside, but the upside is maybe unbounded and we're not really 100% sure what it is. Sounds like a good system to me then.
0: <laughs> well, and that's, you know, I think that's the big thing. And, and it's, it's um, for that base level, especially just kind of like some basic things to teach someone to do for themselves, if nothing else, I mean... Creating some, having something that someone can do that it creates self-efficacy, that creates autonomy, that they're not reliant on on me for is hundred percent. I mean, that's a bonus right there. But again, it's like you know when we talk about this, just the reset for sleep. Every every, most things that you would say to people, obviously, it's going to be some kind of like, you know, oh, we were saying like take melatonin or even like breathing. If you tell someone to meditate, for a lot of people that I work with. They're not used to meditation or, or mindfulness. Yeah. Medi- the idea of meditating can actually be a stressor. It can actually be like, oh, yes. I'm not doing this right. And it creates more problems. With this, there's no, it's, they're just like, hey, like, just, you're not going to do anything wrong. You're not going to hurt yourself. You're, it might hurt on your sternum for a minute, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah. And, and you're good. And I think yeah. that that's, that's something. And, and again, we, we have this vacillation in, in fitness and nutrition, especially where it's like, we either have to go into things that are a hundred percent backed by randomized controlled trials, or it's going to be crystals and, uh, you know, (laughs) anti-vaxxers. And like, we we can't find this middle ground of like, Hey, like just because there's not a study on it, the study is just to, to kind of knock down the pins. (laughs) Like it, if we have enough, if there's enough anecdotal evidence and there's not a downside, it's worth a shot.
1: Yeah. And I, I I, mean, if you live in that area like I do and you do and a bunch of other people we know, like you'll piss off a lot of people in the process, which is totally fine. <laughs> um, because it's like, oh, you don't have any science for that. Or what are you doing? That's all woo woo. I'm like, the client doesn't care. At the end of the day, the client's paying me $200 for a session. They want a result. They could give two hoots that there's 17 studies that prove or disprove it. I'm interested in that because I want to yep. use the data and get them a better result. But... At the end of the day, they just they just wanna move better, feel better and hit PRs in the gym. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. their goal. So yeah. And the last part I liked to you too is about the self efficacious thing. Because I did some hands on work in the past and got myself in a horrible place where I was the fixer of people in pain and that was sort of became my mental outlook too, that I had to fix their pain and that doesn't end well at all. That was a complete utter disaster of my own doing. So when I saw this I was very resistant. And when I realized that, oh, you can uh, do it on yourself, oh, okay. So that gives uh, self-efficacy back to that particular person. Then, so if somebody comes in and they did a session, and then they say, oh, I need to do another session, like my wife Jody will screen them and be like, well, how did your how did your drills go? And if they're like, I didn't do any of them, I'm like, okay, go away, go work on the drills, come back again later. Because I just Mm-hmm. refuse to work on someone again if they're not going to put in the time and effort to do something on their own because i don't want to be that person that's quote unquote fixing them it's like i gave you the tools here it's your job and responsibility to do it if you didn't understand it or you don't have a question or something like that that's that's different will help you through that right it's the same thing with mental stuff psychology stuff with nutrition exercise it's, it's you know at the end you want them to be somewhat self-autonomous and they have to take the action to do that
0: well, I think as a practitioner it's it, it becomes somewhat unethical to yes. uh, create a dependence model mm-hmm. um, because again and, and and unfortunately we we are in an industry that sometimes rewards guruism and rewards um, from just a personal satisfaction level of being the guy yeah. you know or the girl <laughs> like this, this the, the, the savior. And it's like all of a sudden, and we see it, like we, we watch these people get lifted up and this because they're, and you're like, eee, I don't, I don't know this is healthy for either party. <laughs> like, yeah. This is not a good, not a good really, um, I'm, you know, a, a lot of the, um, a lot of my research in, in Buddhism was one of the first like kind of Buddhist uh um, groups that I got really interested in was was Shambala because it's this mm-hmm. like warrior kind of thing, and um, so I, I have a couple of older clients who have uh, were in this world like back in the seventies when you know that that whole thing, and the guy who kind of came over was. Uh, this you know he, he he wrote these books it was really influential and total guruism but he was like a big drunk and like came to the u.s and like was like the part it basically just tur- it kind of turned into like his personal like sex cult you yeah, know like just... i was like like none of none of these things that you're like reading about and you're thinking about of like higher <laughs> higher state of but like still was helping a lot of people but also just it got like you know and actually even like this like the bikram yoga guy right like it's yeah that's and what i was so, thinking too yeah, so it kind of falls into that world of like, your help. You get the you get the the high because you're the one that's like you know playing God here. And uh, so so from a from a practitioner standpoint, it's like, hey, you you got to be careful with this stuff because people's emotions, like, there's a lot of trauma, all these things tied in. And you got to be like, listen, this is not me fixing you. This is you fixing yourself. I'm just showing you a couple of tricks or some tools to help you.
1: Yeah, especially when you start getting into, you know, trauma and stuff like that. It's like if you don't have your own shit figured out, like in my opinion, you run the risk of really messing somebody else up, <laughs> Even especially if you not do. knowing I mean, where like, your limits are.
0: Well, you know, I, 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 I work with a therapist, you know, and, and I talk with my stuff with her and she's not there to fix me. Yeah. she's there to say like oh okay like hey this is like you're, well this is really good
1: you thought about this or that
0: <laughs> yeah like she's not gonna she's not there to say like okay well here's what you're gonna do this is gonna make it all better it's yeah. like hey this is a chance for us to be objective and 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 that's someone who has you know 12 years of schooling in this stuff not yeah. not someone yeah. who went to a weekend certification
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. so yeah, I've, you know as I've we, as we kind other. of like yeah go ahead
0: So as we kind of move into this, like physiologic thing again, like I I really love how now this physiologic is super intertwined with the the psychology because um, you just spent, you know, uh, some time with some special forces guys. My brother's a special forces guy. And so one of the conversations I remember having with him is like, how do you get through this training? Like, how do you get through special forces selection and ranger school? And he's like. I just realized, like, they spend too much money on me. They're not going to kill me, or they're going to try not to kill me.
1: Yeah, they so, have to feed me. the
0: worst case scenario, yeah, he's like, I, I'm not going to die. And I'm like, everyone thinks that the mentality of these guys is like, gung-ho, I'm going to da da it's like, no, the reality uh, is, like, I just have to not, not die. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I just got to not die. And so, I'm, like, thinking, like, how does this translate to because it's – you and you and you, – we've worked with a lot of clients. You get that person in that's so gung-ho. is like, I'm going to uh, do this. And you hear it, and you're like.
1: They make me nervous now. Initially, I was all excited, you know, several years ago. Yeah, "Yeah, they got it. This (laughs) is great. And now I'm just like, "Uh uh-oh, because you know what's going to happen. So I purposely just give them way less than what they want, and that's usually a a bit of an argument. So I do the Krista Scott Dixon with them. I'm like, okay, well, show me then. Like, if you're going to crush these three things out of the 17 you want to do, then you sure as hell better crush these three things, and then maybe we'll give you four. (laughs) <laughs> you know yeah yeah because you know that there's going to be a dip on the other side
0: well and i think too is like from a psychological standpoint i think we all we all want more 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 but like i look at a guy like uh, one of your clients who's a friend of mine as well sam pogue who's yeah. kind of limited in his equipment and you guys are basically doing he's basically doing like the same workout every day right
1: Yeah, he's doing a lot of uh, aerobic-based stuff we got from Cal Dietz. So um, cross-body, easy, low rep stuff for 10 to 20 minutes, just because he's limited on equipment. He's got kettlebells, a few other things, but he doesn't have a lot of cardiovascular stuff. The location he's living in now, it's not really that good to run in. So in terms of things we can do, get a little cross-body education, mostly concentric-type work, and then, yeah, he's been crushing it. But a lot of people won't put up with the mentality of, I'm doing the same thing each day I'm like well yeah because you're still Going to get some benefit from it you're just Accumulating volume over time And at some point it will change uh, But a lot of mm-hmm. people don't want to work through That 6, 8, 10, 12 week Phase of 3 to 4 days For 10 to 20 minutes may look Very very similar <laughs>
0: Yeah it's But you know and I think too and Again I think that's That is part of that psychological flexibility Of like hey yes. How can I get to this point of, um, and also, you know, we've been going through Groundhog Day for almost a year now, you know, most of us have had, and so learning to live in that world, we're starting to learn that might be just as important as learning to live in this, you know, world of like constant sympathetic, just craziness. Like all of a sudden when that's taken away, all of us realized that, man, I was I was living in this weird place, uh, that is probably more damaging, but like, I don't know how to live in the absence of that. And yeah. so having your, having your stressor, your physiologic stressor be very similar, but then still be able to go in and put in that effort. And, and I'm watching his fitness just increase dramatically over time. Oh, like yeah. I'm watching his Instagram and I'm just like, wow, like this is amazing but like th- learning that could be such a benefit for so many of us i think because we we can learn that we don't ha- we don't have to chase novelty for novelty's sake
1: yeah yeah and it, it's finding also the threshold of when do you need to change right so from like december mm-hmm. through january before i left for costa rica i'm like hmm how many times can i front squat <laughs> you know cuz like i realized oh my front squat is abysmal it is like well below my bench press my bench press is pretty shitty um so i'm like okay well i can fix this right i have a gym i i know how to do this shit so i'm like what if i squat like three to five days per week and so i came up with this hellish you know front squat routine to do and i was doing it three days a week for a while and it was great i added like you know 40 pounds to my rep max on a front squat in probably eight weeks but towards the end of that i knew i was going to be gone so i knew i had time off and the week before i left it was it just just you know went off the cliff like you have 300 milligrams of caffeine you go to squat and everything hurts and your performance is just abysmal you're like okay so my peak was actually last week and then you look back at yep. your numbers you're like oh wow that actually worked really good but now is definitely not the time to keep pushing it
0: <laughs> and when i think that's where you know, keeping track of, of data of, you know, I just, I Mm -hmm. just had this conversation with a a client not too long ago and she's like, just question like, when do our numbers change as far as like, you know, macronutrients? And, and so, you know, one thing that I always impart to people is like, I I kind of work in this world where people have like kind of macros and I I do not place a whole lot of, you know, for lack of a better term and better pun, weight on, on numbers because Mm -hmm. most of the people I work with they're they're not hitting numbers to any sort of accuracy that like it no. makes that big of a difference. If I can improve their behaviors around the food, we see change. So for her, we've been working together for quite a while. I think probably nine months. Um, she's lost like seventy pounds, and we haven't changed nice. her numbers. And I was like, we we don't change your numbers in, until your numbers need changing. I mean, yeah. like you've you've adopted all the things that you need to do to lose weight, and it, most of the time. It's not something that needs to change for people that have a lot of weight to lose. And I was like, it. you know, we we don't want to chase novelty for novelty's sake. And, and, you know, part of the influence, too, is, like, you know, reading that, you know, novelty is a really expensive uh, uh, cost for us. Like, it requires a lot of brain power. It requires a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, quote-unquote metabolism. You know, it requires a lot to change something. So if we can avoid changing a variable, if we can avoid changing something that doesn't need to be changed, we can start to figure out more about what, where the deficits might be.
1: Yeah, and I've even had this discussion internally with myself, especially more clients in the past, because I mean, I still do some macro stuff now, but unless they're a competitor or something, I don't really track it super, super close for all the Mm -hmm. reasons you mentioned. Um, But in the past, I got into this habit of, Someone would argue about, oh, when are my macros changing? And so I would just, did not have the argument, I would just change them by like 10 grams. Like your carbs went up 10 grams, mm-hmm. your protein went up five, your fat went up seven. And I just, it's just a mental change, right? And for some people, and this is like a short-term fix, I don't necessarily do this anymore. They were great. And all of a sudden their compliance and everything gets better. But at least then I knew enough to go, okay, so now I know what discussion we need to have next about this. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like even competitors who are like weighing and measuring everything. Maybe you could see a 10 grand difference in carbohydrates, maybe. But even the people that are going to do that are like 0.05 percent of the population. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and for, so for me, the the conversation that I have a lot with people is like, OK, what what do you hope to gain through this change? Because yep. if you can give me a good reason for that. I I I have no emotional attachment to any of this stuff, so I'm like, yeah. I'll give you whatever you want, like if it's gonna. I'm make not emotionally change. invested but, in your
1: macros. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, not at all. People think that they am. It's like, and I think maybe like when I started doing this, I probably was, which is interesting mm-hmm. because like you know you you get into this, you're like, no, I know that the science says that you should be losing weight at this, and but for me, it's like, I I you know. The again, like you, to, to your point, like the the numbers, the, the being strict on the macro stuff with competitors. But like you said, even with my competitors, there's there's just too many other variables in there. Yeah, that them changing their numbers, ten grams of carbs, it makes difference. If if anything, they're like, I'm like, oh, we're just gonna add a hundred grams of carbs on your training days. <laughs> you know, it's like we're gonna make a, if we're gonna make a difference, we're gonna make a difference. But yeah. um, you know, like to that thing of it's like. Okay, so when I ask them, like, what what do you hope to gain for change? And if they come back to me and say, like, I just feel like I'll probably, I might still go over, but I'll be closer and I'll feel better about that, I'm like, 100%, let's yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. But if you think it's the numbers themselves that are going to change when we know that you're probably not hitting them, like, how can we get better at the behaviors around it? Um, and, you know, exercise. And again, that's what I really like about this conversation is that, like, this physiologic, this psychological, and this um, – uh, nutritional, you know, pieces are all so intertwined.
1: Yeah. And I, I had a client recently and he's, he's been doing great. He's been following the process, been putting in all the work. And one of his emails was, he's like, I don't know if I'm, you know, really making any progress and I'm like, you know, in, in the past I would have been more, I guess, emotionally upset about that. But now I'm like, okay, well, let's just, let, let's look at your data. Right, so we had him redo some tests. Uh, it was nine weeks at that point, so it was perfect timing. It Was you know coming up for time to be retested. Did his uh, circumference, did his two K, some rep max tests, and we looked at the data. And his waist stayed the same. You know, other body parts went up in size. You know, his arms went up by like three quarters of an inch. I think it was arms. Um, his two K time dropped by a minute ten. So now he was at seven thirty five. You know so it wasn't like Jeez. he was at 12 minutes and dropped to 11 minutes you know i mean that's a massive difference added 90 pounds yeah. to his one rm on a trap bar deadlift so all of his lifts went up but i get it that the sensation because it's so split out over nine weeks it definitely can feel like you're beating your <laughs> you're beating your head against the wall you know because it's so hard to see changes in yourself and if your only metric is looking at yourself in the mirror each day and it's yourself like i've gone through this myself too it's really hard to see any difference because it is yourself and you're seeing that same thing all the time so i think having other metrics to drive both directions to see yeah maybe Mm -hmm. if they didn't go up which has definitely happened with clients i've had in the past okay yeah we definitely need to make a difference we need to go this direction now because that didn't work Um, but having some data to go both directions is super helpful
0: yeah, and that's I, that's why I love the things like I, I bought a rower. Um Oh, fun. for here cuz I saw Yeah. <laughs> I well, no it's partially it. because like I <laughs> no, but I kind of I kind of do because it doesn't yeah. feel like it, it's work. Like for me it's always mm-hmm. kind of work. Like even when I'm going slow, like if I'm doing like, you know, just kind of my zone 2 work where I'm at like like, I still feel I'm, like, like I'm still pulling. Like, it's still, like... Oh, yeah. And my wife gets mad because I can kind of coast because I'm, you know, 200 pounds and relatively strong. So, for, like, me, when I'm, like, at 130, you know, heartbeats per minute, I'm still, like cranking pretty far and she's yeah (laughs) she's out there but she's way better she's a way better rower than i am so she actually really likes it i mainly bought it because i know she likes to row and it's super portable it's super easy to to contain but it is a machine that i i do i hate it but i like it because yeah i feel like it's the one thing where i can bridge the gap between like you know low and slow cardio stuff and then a 500 sprint on that like it doesn't matter how many times i do it like i want to puke after like it's rough yeah. and then yeah. like the interval stuff is really great so yeah it's yeah. it's I, I need to spend more time on it now but it'll it, it's it'll become more and more in my a staple in there
1: yeah and i think it's because also pulling against a flywheel if people have never done it it's just different right like so when i mm-hmm. had more people training here in person would, one thing if people would come in and be like i just want to get beat up and you like try to talk them out of this so like okay fine I got really good at just beating the crap out of people, but not mechanically damaging them so much that they couldn't walk. So it's like, you're going to go push the car back and forth. You're going to do some battling ropes, and you're going to do reverse sled drags, and a few sledgehammer strikes. And you're going to keep doing that to basically fall down and puke. And it was enough concentric work, but it was also hard enough. Like, if you're pushing a car, once you get that momentum going, like, you just don't want to stop. There's this inherent right. build up to it like pulling on a flywheel is similar. Like if you try to pull slow, you you just get your ass handed to you. So you have oh, yeah. to have some type of power aspect into it just to overcome that resistance. And that's on every pull, every pull, every. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and I think you're right. It's such a mechanical movement that it's kind of meditative in a way. It's like, yes, you just get, it's really easy to get a rhythm in. And like the, 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 the computer thing's really nice. Cause it does, it kind of gives you like, instant feedback you know i wear my heart rate monitor and all that mm-hmm. and do, do all the you know uh stuff there but but it is like seeing that monitor and being like okay like i can watch it i can watch my 500 time move up and down or my 2000 whatever it is like and see my adjusted time and kind of stay in that range look at my heart rate and i'm like it's i like that i like that kind of instant feedback and being like okay i can actually because i'm not a pay, like i'm a I, i'm a uh, 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 you know i loved strongman because nothing went longer than a minute like yeah <laughs> i am out of the gate i am a hundred percent like i like to just crush and then i just die at like you know 45 seconds into any workout so for yeah. me having something that paces for me is really really good
1: yeah and that's one of the things i do i got from dr kenneth j at the kerrigan institute is we'll just do a bioenergetic profile on people right so we'll take them everywhere from 100 meters to 30 seconds, 60 second, 180 second wind gate. These are for like more high end, like CrossFit type athletes, Right. you know, 2K and then all the way out to like a 20 minute capacity test. And then there's good data from, especially some Scandinavian countries and you can map to see where they're at. So even for like a strength and power athlete, a lot of times I'll find like their 20 minute capacity is just absolute dog crap. You know, once we get that up to just a nominal level, like all of a sudden the recovery and everything else between sets, between workouts everything goes back up and then vice versa. You have some people who are really good at holding endurance and their speed and power is just horrible. And you get that up to a level that matches a little bit better. And then everything else improves again too.
0: So if we're like talking for someone at home who's, who's, you know, just trying to kind of improve just kind of everything like, right? Like they're, they're kind of working on their nutrition. They just want to be like a little bit better, uh, you know, in the gym. But like, I know because you use that, that rower as a really good metric, um, for people. What, what, how would you say like, to, how would you have someone at home if they were like, okay, just kind of like test themselves and then retest and, and try to build that capacity.
1: Yeah. I mean, the easiest thing I do is if you want super simple is just get on a rower, adjust. So it's called the, the damper, right. Or your drag factor to, you know, 120 to 130. Right. So you can look up online how to do that. So, you know, that's at just a relatively fixed pace because you're probably using some random rower somewhere. Um, and then set the distance for 2000 meters and just row as hard as you can. It's going to suck big moose balls. And if you feel really bad, you can come back in three days and do it again. Um, but take that data (laughs) and then go into, uh, online, just type in concept two, uh, VO two max, and it'll take you to the concept two site. And then you can put in that data and then put on, you know, not highly trained rower and it'll give you all the normative data, right? So what I'm kind of looking for people is, you know, compared to population, where, where are they at? Are they really good, bad, average, excellent? And then the next step is you can go into the concept 2 database where everyone has been logging all of their um, data. Go to the previous year, because you'll have basically a whole year's worth of data. And you can see how you stack up for people of your gender, uh, age and, uh, weight. And so for most of those, again, I stole this from Dr. Kenneth Jay. is, you know, I want to see most people at least at the 50% mark on there. And is that probably higher than population standards? Yeah. Cause you got a bunch of people who are rowing or logging <coughs> stuff or into fitness. Um, but you know, I've had some people that are like at the bottom 5%. You know, it's like, even if your goal is a physique athlete, I can absolutely 100% guarantee that this is limiting your progress. And you don't have to get up to 90%. You don't have to be an elite level rower. You can do the bike. You can do other modalities. But it also just gives people a marker to kind of look. Um, And they're like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I I didn't realize I sucked that bad. Right? But it gives you something to then shoot for. Like, so when I first started doing it, I I was horrible. I was like at the bottom, like 10%, you know, 15%. You know, then I get up mm-hmm. to fifty percent. So my long term goal is to hit seventy-five percent of the population on the concept two site for a five hundred meter, two K and a five K. Um, so that's kind of my long term goals. And I think, and Kenneth Jay's talked about this too, that seventy-fifth percentile is probably a pretty good marker. That's you know, for some people gonna be a multi-year goal. But after that mm-hmm. it really starts flattening out. You know, if you want to go from 75th percentile to 90 or 90 to 95th percentile, you're probably gonna need a lot of specialization. That's probably going to be your main thing. It's going to take up a lot of time, but as an accessory thing, you can put in a fair amount of work, but you can probably get to a relatively high level without having to go like, you know, a hundred percent balls deep into being a rower on top of everything else.
0: Now, I know, I know you, there's actually a really good conversation about what I'm going to ask you about in a minute that, that you did, I uh, was stronger experts with uh, Luke Lehman and, and Alex Viada, I believe. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, about nasal breathing. But where does the nasal breathing thing kind of come in
1: here? Yeah. So, so how I got into nasal breathing was probably almost, shit, maybe over four years ago now. I had a bunch of, you know, intermediate to kind of higher-ish, you know, level regional competitors for CrossFit. And I just couldn't get them to stop beating the shit out of themselves. <laughs> You know, they were paying me a lot of money too. My first thought is I'll just charge them a lot of money. And, you know, that works to some degree. But um, so I came up with putting them on a rower. And because if my first thought was, okay, easy. We'll just look at heart rate. But then something would happen to the heart rate monitor. The dog would eat it or got thrown under the couch. Or, you know, you you would always be magically missing this heart rate data from it. So I said, okay, you're going to get on the rower. You're going to do a 5K. And you're only going to breathe through your nose the entire time. Cause my first thought is that's automatically going to drop you from the top, uh, down. And I knew just from watching some of their videos and stuff, like when they're doing met you their know, mouth is like open hundred percent. Like you ask them, you know, like you wake up in the morning and it feels like a bird died in your mouth. Yeah. How did you know, mm-hmm. you know, like, ah, sleeping with their mouth open all the time. And when I even started doing this, like, man, for me to get above like 110, it, I, it was hard without opening my mouth. Um, mm-hmm. so one guy in particular, we had him do the 5k. Mm-hmm. We said, give me your heart rate. Uh, give me your time. Only breathe through your nose His max heart rate was like 111. And I'm like, okay, that's perfect for what I want. Cause I want a lower intensity, longer duration thing. But for them, it felt hard, right? Because they're kind of addicted to doing things oh, yeah. that feel hard. So for them, it fit the prescription of I got their intensity down, but they, f- it felt hard. Right. And so they're so trained to be like, okay, if this is hard, I got to keep doing it. Um, so it, it fit those two criteria perfectly. And then over time, like in this guy's particular case, like eight weeks later, he was hitting, you know, 145, you could hit the one fifties pretty good. Um, but his capacity also went up dramatically during that time. So that's how I initially started doing it. And I started looking at some stuff like uh, Brian McKenzie from art of breath has a lot of great stuff on it. And I'm like, Oh, I think breathing at lower intensities through your nose is probably going to be better. And then if you fast forward many years, everything now is like, oh, everyone's just over-breathing and you must breathe out of your nose 100% of the time. And I'm like, but during max exercise, what's going to limit most people (laughs) is is air exchange unless you're just really deconditioned, right? So how much air are you going to get through two little small pipes versus one large pipe? Right? At some point, that is going to be your rate limiter. And if you're breathing through your nose only, you just gave yourself a rate limiter. right? Um, so I mm-hmm. think you want to, again, just like metabolic flexibility, right? you want to expand the entire range. And Brian McKenzie talked a lot about this. So lower level stuff, I think nasal in, nasal out is great. And then nasal in, mouth out. Just focus on an exhale. And then at some point, yeah, you're going to be breathing in and out of your mouth. However, I think that should be only really uh, high-end uh, performance, right? My 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 pet peeve is that people get really into testing, which I love testing. I got a friggin' Moxie, I got a freaking metabolic cart in my house, so I love. <laughs> yeah, you bought testing. a metabolic cart. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that was like my goal for 12 years. Like, oh, if I could ever get a metabolic cart, then my life is made. Um, so I think it's great, but it, I lose track sometimes of testing of how many people send me testing, and I'm like, oh, great, you got this Moxie data, you got this this and that heart rate. What was their performance? Like you put them on a rower, right? You're going to get Watts. Like, how did they do? Oh, I don't know, man. I forgot to check. I'm like, how could you forget to check? Like without knowing the output, the outcome of all this, like none of it matters. So I think sometimes people get too invested in, do I nasal breathe? Do I nasal breathe, mouth? What do I do blah, 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 blah. It's like, if your mechanics and your output is going up and you're feeling better and you have a simple metric, like maybe HRV to measure stress and it's not going crazy, whatever you did is working, right? Whatever you did, you're becoming right. more efficient. You're, you're on the right track somewhere. Um, so I think sometimes we have to dial it back a little bit. And I always do this thing where I'll use a whole bunch of technology and then I'll try not to use any technology, right? So I'll do, you know, hands-on stuff, allowing myself to use technology, a mega wave, HRV, whatever. And then literally I imagine myself, okay, you got dropped off on a desert island. You gotta go train that guy. What do you do? You have nothing. You have no phone, no nothing. Can I transfer some of the knowledge and stuff I've learned from testing to just using your hands and just talking to someone? So I think both ends of the spectrum are good.
0: Well, and I think that's what I appreciate about you so much is that, um, you know, just this conversation of like people look to you and they're like, oh, you know, they know your background with HRV and like with all this testing and stuff. And I think that people assume that that's where you live. But um, oh, yeah. so much of your coaching is, 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 is much more esoteric. It's much more, Hey, how is this affecting, like, how is this affecting behavior? And mm. again, I think, I think most of our conversations actually fall in that realm of like, yes. Okay. So that's cool that, that this stuff comes up, but how is the person applying it or how do we get them to apply it? Like, how do we get yeah. them to do the thing? And, um, I think that like, you know, again, you know, whether it be RPR stuff or the heart rate variability, it's like if if they're getting caught in the dogma and the tool without the application, like it's like it doesn't doesn't, just doesn't matter. Like you said, if you don't have output data, like it doesn't matter about this stuff. And so I think that um, and, and, you know, the nasal breathing its hard for me, but it's like I think when people started getting this argument about the nasal breathing stuff, it's like for me, it was never like. A weird thing because coming from a fighting background, mm-hmm. it's 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 accepted as dogma. You start breathing through the mouth, you're going to get knocked out because your mouth's yeah. open or you're going to get your yeah. jaw broken. So yeah. it's like they just <laughs> that's just a rule. Like you better breathe. And when you get your nose broken, that's when stuff goes bad because all of a sudden you have to start. <sighs> <sighs> cause you can't breathe out of your nose. And so like for me, I was always like, yeah, it's probably a pretty good thing to be able to breathe out of your nose. And like you said, then taking away to me that's i love that that the nasal breathing you, you started doing it because it was a way to take away the tools to take away the technology yeah. it's like hey let's limit this you know I, and again you had that conversation with, with viada i remember him saying one time people were like how do i find zone two like if i'm he's like, he's like just when you're running have a conversation
1: yeah, the old school talk Can you type. talk?
0: <laughs> yeah, like that's it's like we don't need like we don't need all this stuff. You know, it's it's good to have it. But I, again that's what I appreciate about you is it's like you're saying like and, and this even comes down, you know, I think if we all applied this principle across our lives, I mean I, I still remember we've had this, you know, a few times talking about like when you gave a talk at at a um a seminar and you talked about like one day I was gonna do it with just the whiteboard. And then yeah. one day I was gonna do it with just a computer, and I guess he showed up and they didn't have a whiteboard or something. But but it's like, hey, how like 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 even in in talks, like can I do can I can I convey my message without my PowerPoint? Because if not, mm-hmm. maybe my message isn't that great.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because the first time I I did that for a larger audience was actually at uh, Ben House's place before he had the the new place. That the first time we were down there. And it was getting closer to the talks. He's like, "Hey, you got time to do, you know, a second talk on supplements?" I'm like, "Perfect." And in my head, I'm thinking, "God, I don't know the audience. I haven't been there yet. Like, I did one want talk from in Austin." I'm like, "Screw it. I'll, I'll just ask them. What do they want to know? I've got an hour and a half." And so I go up there, and I'm like, "All right, guys, supplements. What do you want to know?" And so I just start drawing, writing stuff down on the right side of the board. And my wife in the back is like looking horrified and Ben's kind of looking very (laughs) quizzical, you know, and I, you know, ended up doing it and I tied all the parts together and it it turned out okay. And in my head I did it initially because it was a way to save time and I could, you know, modify stuff on the fly without having 800 slides. And it turns out like everyone was like thought that was like the greatest talk ever. Like, Oh, it was so cool that you did all that. And I'm thinking, I'm like, Shit, why am I spending like hours upon hours upon hours doing a formal PowerPoint that people are probably less interested in than something else? So like the one you were at, I was like, okay, could this be a teaching point where I'm going to now give you a talk that is literally only by PowerPoint and nothing else to constrain it to that? Mm -hmm. Because. If you're doing academic talks and that kind of stuff that's all you get if you're on national stage at nsca the freaking screen's like 800 feet wide you you can't Mm -hmm. do a whiteboard for that many people and then on the flip side the next day can you do a talk that is only a whiteboard there's no pictures no nothing else and you know again i think like you said can you get good at doing both of those those skill sets and over time you can kind of decide which one you like better and then you know kind of pick talks that kind of go in that direction but you know, both of them are useful. Again, it's it's defined by the constraints of the system that you have to play in. If you think you're going to go to ACSM and give a talk on a whiteboard, good friggin' luck, you know? But if you think right. you're going to give a talk to a local gym and bamboozle them with 800 slides on PowerPoint and expect anyone to pick anything up, they're going to throw dumbbells at your head. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I, and I think it more speaks to your just overall philosophy. It's like... Again, and I think this comes back to the, and, you know, it's. I, I sometimes worry about getting pigeonholed because because I, I love the the term of anti fragile and resilient, but I think there's some some clown shoes out there people oh, that God, use yeah. it and I, that drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but like I really feel like that that mentality of like let me broaden my horizons, let me not get constrained by these outside things, whether it's in fitness, whether it's in nutrition, whether it's in presenting, whether it's in business, whether it's in coaching, like just constantly challenging ourselves to step outside of our comfort zone. It just, it really does just make us better across the board. And I don't know. It's just, it's. Yeah.
1: And I think that's where all the, I mean, at some point, right. And we can say this cause we're older people now, I guess. Not that I feel like I'm old, but you know, even like just for like, you know, two decades, I guess you're kind of the older people in fitness, but at some point, like there's only so much you can go down without becoming very, very niched in a certain area. And to me, the interesting parts have always been like, what are the overlaps? You know, what's the overlap between engineering Mm -hmm. and physiology? You know, and so, like, about probably eight years ago, I set up, like, for myself, just an internal standard of, okay, what level do I need to get to before I can start crossing areas? Because there's a double sided Mm -hmm. coin where a lot of people will cross areas too soon and they know nothing about either area, you know. And Tom (laughs) Myers said once, he's like, if, if you just throw a bunch of shit into a pot you're gonna get shit stew you know and no one wants that but he's like if you go to a chef who knows what to combine for ingredients they can combine very esoteric stuff and it can be really really good but he's like they're also at an extremely high level and kind of know what to combine i was like oh cool so i was like okay can for myself can i get to the level where I'm good enough at one thing that the market will pay me only for that one thing, right? Can I get good enough Mm -hmm. at hands-on therapy that literally people pay me $200 a session and they know nothing about me anywhere else. Can I then teach for an organization that does that, right? So now I'm teaching other people to do that. Um, so for me, can I get paid for that particular thing and can I teach that particular thing either on my own or for an organization? For myself, at that point now I can combine that with something else. All right? It's like the talks we had. Like how do you combine maybe nutrition with a little bit of psychology with some hands on stuff? Oh, okay, breathing, do some breathing stuff first, they can better relax at night.
0: Uh, yeah and i think like i think that's just an interesting way to put it like um hey here is here's is what i want to get really good at i'm also going to get really good at this thing and thinking about them as standalone i think is where a lot of people probably miss out because if you can be and it doesn't mean you have to be the the, the expert but if you can be enough that someone is willing to pay you for that thing then you've probably done you've got probably gotten pretty good at it right? And you can probably, if you can teach it, you've probably gotten really good at it. And then you can start to combine those things together. I love that. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, And I think that speaks to kind of this whole idea of these, of, of, again, you know, your kind of what you do, whether it be the metabolic flexibility or the psych, physiologic flexibility or the psychological flexibility, these things are all, all speak to that that mindset, which I think is actually probably too uh too little examined in our field. I think so many people um want to focus on one thing and that that not and, and they they aren't flexible. Whether that be in their training modality, whether that be in, you know, they took a PRI course and so now nah, anything went in extension is gonna die immediately. Or they, you know, Whatever it might be, people are very inflexible because it's it's a lot easier to sell inflexible. Probably a lot easier to make money in that. yep and that's i mean it's and again and, and that's that's really what this this podcast is about this is what's trying to like like again like uh, you know i had lisa lewis on behavioral you know psychologist who also really into she's really into training and she helps fitness professionals and works i had tommy on who obviously just does you know everything and and uh, and um so it's like but it's it but but all the people that I'm really interested in working with and being around and, and networking with and learning from all adopt that that kind of idea because there's gonna be some time I'm gonna go down the rabbit hole and find that one person who really but like they're I'm gonna go like take a course from them, but I don't know that I wanna sit and, and hang out until two AM at a conference talking to them about stuff because you know, like I'm, I'm probably gonna end up talking. Like, you know, if it's two a.m. in in Kansas City, we're gonna be talking about Corrosion of Conformity album probably not about nutrition (laughs) you know like that's the people that interest me is like i like all the other stuff like you said there's got to be there's got to be more to it than that so um but anyways i just you know i want to thank you for coming on here again you're someone who i just i just not only i someone i just really like but i really appreciate you and i appreciate your um your stance in the industry and just just being you and 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 doing all this stuff it's uh it just it it again like i people bitch about this industry but i i just i find i've i've met just the greatest people and have the, the best time talking with you guys so so thank you so much and um guys where can um i i don't th- i don't know if your metflex uh, cert is open now i can't keep track of your your uh your things but but what do you have going on right now and where can people find you and where can people find out more about uh, about these courses and your coaching The email is the best, though. Like, because, yeah, definitely, like, if anyone's listening, sign, sign up for the newsletter. It's, it's, there's always, like, really, really, really good research-based content and your, your writing is really good. Like a lot of people assume just like equals bad writing, but there's, there's good, there, it's actually enjoyable, uh, you know, fun, fun content to read. So it's, it's, uh, it's informative and entertaining. So again, thanks. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, thank you guys for listening. And, uh, if you like this, make sure you uh, hit subscribe and, um, you know, join in. All right. Thanks a lot.